We're the Nada Grande Boys. I'm Rodney Wood. And I'm Kyle Jackson. Welcome to the Nada Grande Outdoors podcast where we hunt it forward. That's good. Yep. We want to welcome everybody to the podcast. But uh, uh, this week on the podcast, we have a special guest, Dave Stambaugh. Uh, I'm going to let you kind of tell the listeners a little little bit about you, a little bit about your history. But uh, our topic this week is going to be waterfowl hunting, which Rodney and I have very little knowledge about. That's an um, overstatement. I've <laughs> shot at a few things like dove, but um, I, sh- I guess I should say migratory bird hunting. Uh, that's going to kind of be what we focus on. Everybody just kind of lumps it all in as waterfowl. Absolutely. So, Dave, give us uh, give us a little bit of background where you uh, how you got started hunting and, and kind of um, yeah how you got here. Sure. I actually uh, grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Um, I wasn't born wasn't born in New Mexico. That's all right. Moved here probably younger. I mean, I don't remember not living here. As long as we so claim was, it, right? <laughs> so grew up, you know, running the woods and the streams around the Hamas. And, uh, you know, both of my grandfathers, uh, one of my grandfathers had a ranch in, in uh, central Texas. And my other grandfather, they're from Ohio. Um, they all hunted. My uncle's hunted. My dad is, is, a, is a big hunter. A lot of the reason he decided to move to New Mexico, they're school teachers, but he he wanted to move to New Mexico um, to hunt elk. I can respect him for that. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> so to make make a cross country move just to hunt elk, I can absolutely respect. You know, that. he's an amazing elk hunter. Um, you know, he's he's harvested a lot of elk over the years, and I've been on a lot of those hunts, whether I had a license or whether I didn't have a license. Um, but when I did have a license, I was ever successful on elk. Um, even though a lot of members of my family always were. And in fact, the only big game I've ever harvested, I harvested an antelope when I was 13 and I harvested a management buck last Thanksgiving at the age of 46. Oh, wow. So those are the only two big game animals I've ever harvested. Yeah. Um, in fact, my kids grew up with me hunting small game. The first big game they ever, uh, harvested was their cow elk two Thanksgivings ago hmm. at the ages of 21 and 20. Yeah. So never big game hunted. They didn't grow up big game hunting, but they grew up hunting. It's, I, I, I do find that amazing because there is a, there, there, there's a lot of people that do both, but there's also yeah. a lot of people that just big game hunt mm-hmm. and a lot of people that just small game hunt, a lot of people that just waterfowl hunt. That's correct. There, there's, there's factions within hunting that I think sometimes yeah. we don't really realize. Yeah. Uh, well, and when you think, when everybody starts, whenever the talk turns to hunting, um, I think the outside perception is automatically big game hunting because mm-hmm. that's the most in the public eye. eye that's, you know, um, you, we talk about the gripping grins. You see those all over Facebook mm-hmm. and all of that. But there are, you know, uh, I think that's why this is a really good podcast to kind of get some awareness out about the different types of hunting that there actually is right. going on besides just big game hunting. Cause that's really what, I mean, not uh, to correct me if I'm wrong audience, whenever you listen to this, but 
your mind goes to big hunt, big game hunting oh. whenever you think of hunting. Yes, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I, th- I agree with that 100%, and I think that that's uh, kind of a misconception, honestly. Yeah. Um, uh, so something else I want to point out, though. Um, is it turkey? Big game? No, it was classified as big game it for is. Lo- it's quite a big long game proclamation. Time. It is. But it's not... It's not a large animal. No. <laughs> well, it's not managed by the same um, biologists mm-hmm. in the department as the, the other big, big game, game species yeah. are. Yeah, it was. It they was... they classified as a as a resident game bird. Yes. There you go. Like pheasant, quail, turkeys. So for a long time, it was lumped in. At least in New Mexico, it was lumped in with the big game stuff mm-hmm. because really that's kind of where it fits with the draw and all that stuff how you how you hunt turkey yeah Mm -hmm. drawing permits and things like that and that's why that fits in there um versus the upland and the migratory and stuff like that well until last year the all the upland birds was in the big game proclamation yes that is true too and we can talk more about that later but you know when i was 15 a friend of my dad's took me dove hunting and put a shotgun in my hand and I went home and I told my dad, I was like, hey, is there any way, you know, we can take my, my good old 270 here and, and trade it in for a shotgun? And, and uh, he ended up going to Rob Peterson's and getting me a shotgun anyway. Yeah. And that's kind of how it started. And it just started with that. And, you know, 30 years of, of gear accumulation later, um, you know, here we are still right. hunting birds and, and loving every minute of it. Yeah. And that's, that's probably why... Right there, what you just said, 30 years worth of gear. That's probably why you have those different factions. Mm-hmm. Because I've got You can only afford to get down one path. <laughs> exactly I've got right. 30 years worth of gear, and it's all geared right. towards big game. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and if and, I had to add to that waterfowl. And within big game, you have archery exactly. hunters oh, and you have exactly rifles. That's what I was so. about to say is, is within big game, you're like, okay, you, you, as, as a kid, you start out hunt with a rifle because that's the easiest way to do it Mm -hmm. and then you start getting into you know i i really love muzzleloader hunting and so that was kind of my first step and then um i started hunting with with rodney and and he started talking about archery i'm like man i can't even i can't afford to get into (laughs) archery i i don't even have enough stuff for the muzzleloader that i need and then of course you get you you go actually the way i got into archery hunting was really funny i put in for the once in a lifetime by a doll hunt for archery never archery hunted before in my life and i drew it the first time i put in for it <laughs> and so that was kind of my catapult into the archery world that and forced you into it, it forced me yeah. into it but having said that I, when I, I went on that hunt and you have those bulls screaming in your face you never go back I, I was mad about that for two reasons one because he drew that tag <laughs> first time ever <laughs> um two um I had been trying all year to talk him into putting into in for an archery bull elk tag. And he was like, nah, not going to do it. Okay. So then he puts in with his brothers, which, you know, kudos. Right. Um, but still. Yeah, well, see, and it you got think him it, into archery, we also, and we now also we do get a lot of archery about, I, get to, I get to think about it from the other side. I've drawn that hunt. I, uh, you know, awesome experience. One of the, one of the best hunts mm-hmm. I've had um, with my brothers. We packed in. You know, camp backcountry, packed in on horseback, all that stuff. We were surrounded by elk every single day. Just couldn't close the deal, and 
I mean, surprise, surprise, first time I went archery hunting, couldn't close the deal, you know. Mm. But I look at I look at it like I've drawn that tag, I got to hunt that. But when Rodney draws that tag, I get to hunt that again. Yeah. I may not be able to take an animal, but I get to hunt right, it all right. over again. Yeah, exactly. So. This well, is what big game hunters do. We, 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 we invite a waterfowl hunter and, and talk about hijack it. So I'm going to I'm going to steer us back because waterfowl hunting is the same way. There's you know you have archery, you have rifle. Well, in waterfowl hunting, you have you might have field hunting, mm-hmm. you might have marsh hunting. Well, that's two different completely sets of gear. Mm-hmm. You know, going from you know a cornfield to you know a, a cattail marsh. Um, you know, it, and I know we're not going to talk a lot about about upland hunting but you know in in upland hunting you're going to have a lot of times you might even have a different dog yeah different breed of dog right so you have all these sections within that and you know when we're talking about gear i mean i i I don't know i i haven't seen y'all's gear but you know y'all load up a truck or two trucks and you go out hunting for five days um i'll load two trucks to the brim to go hunt for a morning yeah you know what I mean? Depending yeah. on, you know, what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. You know, if we're hunting snow geese, we're putting out a thousand decoys. Wow. You know, if we're hunting a small marsh with ducks, we're only, maybe we're only putting out a couple dozen decoys, but we're taking the blind and we're taking the dogs blind and we're taking and you're probably you know, doing, waders. And you're and, probably doing what every, every other hunter does. And you take, you, you look at something, you're like, I might need that. I and might. it goes yeah. in the truck. I might need yeah. That, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm I'm an infamous overpacker. I might need that. I overpack all the time. Yeah, but you never know. You know, my dad always said it's better to you know have, have it and it. not need it than need it and not that's have it. Exactly yep. right. So, um, but anyway, that's how I I kind of got into bird hunting. Um, started I you know I had a hiatus from hunting um, after college for a little while, as I was you know get my my life and my career and my family going and then. Um, you know, my kids, when I say when my kids got old enough, um, I was taking my kids bird hunting five and six years old. Yeah. Uh, the smallest waders you could buy. Um, unfortunately, they grow very fast. My son yeah. is, you know, 6'3", and my daughter's 5'10", now. Yeah. So um, always trying to keep them in gear was, you know, a thing. But they always experienced it. They always went. Um, and then, it, obviously, as soon as they they finished their hunter education, um, they they were in the game, too. Yeah. So that's cool. Um it's so interesting to think about how how every one of us has that different path, you know, in into hunting. And mm-hmm. and it's so broad across the spectrum. Uh, again, you think about you hear word the word hunting and automatically I think what springs to the public's mind is I've uh, been doing it since you're you're a kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think Kind of your experience is similar to my experience, somewhat. I mean, I didn't I didn't hunt uh, hardcore when I was a kid. My dad took us on a couple of elk hunts, but then at, you know, in college I didn't do anything. I kicked myself because I didn't do I anything. Did, yeah. I was in some yeah. of the most cool places I could have hunted: Idaho and Utah, and I did not take any advantage. I was in of Missouri, it. and I was like. You know, there's so much opportunity right. there that didn't take care of. Too yeah. busy chasing other things. <laughs> right, right. That would be correct. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I I think that, you know, and that's what's so interesting about hunting and angling and trapping in general is that there's something that fits every personality. Yeah. You know, I may not 
have you know the patience to sit so still that that elk comes bugling in my face at 15 yards i may like to take a morning and sit and you know waterfowl hunting you know we can sit and you know talk to each other and and have some camaraderie while we're waiting for you know birds to fly Mm -hmm. we can cook breakfast in the blind um you know it's just you know it's a whole different kind of you you know my interest yes (laughs) (laughs) beer comes completely later um (laughs) but you know there there there's the, an element to it that's different than any other type of hunting. And that's what's cool about hunting and fishing is it can fit almost any personality. Yeah, yeah all, all you it know. can. And it, um, like Kyle said, it, the difference, I've, I've been hunting my whole life. Um, I started hunting like you did with your kids, just mm-hmm. as, as soon as I could hold up a rifle long enough to shoot it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been hunting and we started this podcast and, and we were actually, we were out today hunting to me. I, I don't know why I never viewed it as a career path, but it was just, it was just a passion. It, yeah. it was just something, it was, a, it was a right. hobby and a, a passion, you know, something that I wanted to do. And I was I saying it's more wait. than a hobby. Yeah. But yeah, it, yeah, I couldn't wait to do it every year. I mean, every year, as soon as the hunt was over, I couldn't wait till next year. Um, Kyle was talking today, you know, cause we were out fishing and he was like, we need to, taking pictures and videos and getting content for the page and all of that and i'm like i just want to fish dude (laughs) just come on man right so um i I, yeah that that's interesting well uh in addition to that though kind of back when we were you and i got together we're hunting this hunting i guess was a career path for some but but you watch most of the what was on TV about hunting back in the day, and it was, I mean, ninety percent of it was whitetail hunting back east. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it didn't really apply to us. Um, you know, we can talk about this for a second. We can talk about Duck Dynasty for a second. Yeah, right. Um, you know, Duck Dynasty, um, you know, really brought to light you know some waterfowl hunting stuff. Um, I think people in that had been waterfowl hunting knew who Phil Robertson was. And, you know, the first duck commander call that came out in 73, I think that's probably like the first call that most of us had, you know, the wooden one. And, and that show really brought that out. And I actually got a lot of blowback, um, you know, in the waterfowl community, you know, people saying, Oh man, you know, the duck dynasty guys are out there. They don't know what they're doing. You know, they show up in all their new gear and they just want to be like duck dynasty and they don't know what they're doing. And I viewed it is actually something really beneficial to waterfowl hunting, Absolutely. not not detrimental. Yeah. You know, it introduced a lot of new people to the sport. I mean, we all learn somewhere. Yeah. You know, my dad is not a waterfowl hunter. My grandpa, my grandparents are not a waterfowl hunter. Everything I learned, I learned from a friend, from a book, mm-hmm. um, from a game warden, <laughs> sometimes the hard way. Um, you know, all of those things um, – you know, you learn along the way and you have to start somewhere. And I, I found that, you know, the duck dynasty thing to, in my opinion, was actually a really beneficial thing. Yeah. Well, I is, think is putting more people out in the field, I think you, more you, duck stamp sold. touch on something that we talk about all the time with our hunt it forward. And, and that's why we started our hunt it forward initiative is because the hunting community as a whole is very closed off very mm-hmm. standoffish we don't want anybody else in and i'm like you i'm like man that 
that that is an opportunity that right. that shouldn't be passed up to bring those new people in and we shouldn't we should view it as an opportunity to educate educate rather Absolutely. than say look at those idiots with the brand new gear we catch right. the same flat all right. the time all the time i've had i've had plenty of buddies um you know yelling at me you know don't be giving away areas and don't be talking about units and the more people you bring into hunting the harder it is for us to if contact. i hear the word honey hole one more time i know Oh, right. I does. That was like one of my thing. pet peeves. It, you just want to like grab him by the shoulder and be like, do you really think you have one spot of ground that no one else knows about? Yeah. As, especially in New Mexico especially with New Mexico. water, yeah. water now, foul. Yeah. There's, there's only so much there's water. There's only so much you, water. You can blow up an area. I, mean, I understand I the get whole, that. You know, especially if you're on social media. Um, if you mention a specific spot, you may ha- now all of a sudden have a hundred people want to go hunting there, right. but I have a spot that I hunted as a kid for a long time, and it got completely blown up. And it wasn't because anybody said they got a good deer out of there or anything like that. It was mm-hmm. because they opened up a logging contract and they cleared the roads. Lots of roads. It was mm-hmm. it was a nice smooth road. It used to take us an hour and a half to get in there pulling a camper because it right. was a rough, miserable drive. Now right. it takes you fifteen minutes. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, access Welcome is definitely access is definitely a thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that one thing that and every waterfowler knows, I mean, the season is is so long. To me, if somebody takes their spot, go back the next day and get there before them. Right. You know, <laughs> get up an hour earlier, yeah. you know, beat them beat them to the spot. Yeah. You know, and I think that's why waterfowl hunting since that's what we're talking about in particular is is such a great educational and recruitment tool. I mean, we're talking you know, we might go out in a morning and be home by lunch. Um, oh. During that time span, I might shoot 25, 30 rounds. Nice. You know, shells, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I might have a really good day, you know, just, you know, just have ducks on my face. And if it didn't go well that day, I have 108 other days or 106 other days besides that day, um, you know, to go waterfowl right. hunting. You know, you start in September with teal, you got nine days and then... Um, you know, we can talk about the zones later, you know, South zone, North zone and the, and the flyways and, uh, you know, how those days correspond. But I mean, there's, there's a lot of opportunity to, you know, to go out and do it again. Yeah. Um, every year, you know, in my waterfowl, uh, career, I, I tried to go somewhere, um, that took me a long time to get there and was, you know, maybe a place that I hadn't gone before and camp out and stay a few days and, you know, just like have a, what you guys would call hunting, right? But I would say a majority of my waterfowl hunting, and I grew up after Los Alamos, um, my parents took a job in Bosque Farms. And that whole right that whole Rio Grande, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. you know, flyway, that, that whole corridor all the way down, you know, to Elephant Butte and even Caballo. And we've even, you know, waterfowl as far south as, you know, the Texas border and the Mexican border. There you go. So I, th- um, I think it's also interesting, you know, you talk about, blowing the place out as far as being gate, big game hunting. The nice thing about, I think wa- waterfowl hunting in New Mexico mm-hmm. is, uh, it's hard to blow something out because that's the only water there is. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and when, well, and it, and it's also the migration, right? Yeah, when, yeah. when, those, when you're talking big game migration, you're talking a few hundred miles. Mm-hmm. When you're talking waterfowl migration, you're talking a few thousand miles. Yeah. I shot a banded snow goose several years ago. 
um, that was a nine-year-old bird that was that was um, banded within the Arctic Circle in the Northern Territories of Canada. And so that bird had been, you know, if it had just taken one trip here and one trip back without flying all around here and feeding and all that stuff, I mean, you know, that's 6,000 miles round trip. Right. You know, so, yeah, you may have a bad day. New birds coming the next day. Cold front coming, you know, through Colorado, pushing, on, pushing you know, pushing down. birds out of there. Because once, you know, it's just like any other wildlife, right? Food cover. Yep. Um, you know, habitat and necessities. So, you know, they that habitat gets covered up. They got to move south, find new habitat. Right. And if you're in the right spot, Good then, to go. then here they come. Well, we'll hit our first official squirrel. You said banded. That's a big deal in the waterfowl community, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is the negative connotation of, of trophy hunting, right? Yeah. You know, and, and to me, trophy can be a lot of different things, especially as a bird hunter. You know, if you're an avid turkey hunter, you know, drawing the spring Viavidal turkey hunt is a trophy hunt yeah. in your mind, right? Um, a, a specific bird, a species that you're after, maybe a species that you've never harvested before, and especially banded birds. Um, you know, they're they're one in, you know, a few thousand. I don't know exactly what what that statistic is, but I've actually been able to participate with, um, like down in Boscadale Apache mm-hmm. and at Bernardo with feds and with the state, um, uh, being able to help, um, capture and ban birds. Nice. And so scientists use this as a, um, as, as a tool to study uh, migration, population density, um, you know, how long these birds are living, where they're coming from, where they're going, all that type of stuff. So for a waterfowl hunter to shoot a banded bird is truly is a trophy. And you'll see them on, on guys yeah. call lanterns all the time. Um, you get, you shoot a banded bird, you get that serial number. Now it's website based. It used to be an 800 number that you would call yeah. and you give them the serial number. You tell them what day you shot it, what time you shot it, where you, where you harvested that bird. Um, they, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service still does it, and if you do it online, you can just print it. But it's a certificate, and it shows all the data that they had collected on that bird. Nice. That's they really tell cool. you, okay, that's that's a six-year-old, um, you know, Drake Widgeon. It was banded in, you know, you know, you know, Podunk, South Dakota, you know, wherever that happens to be. Yeah. And they give you that information, and you have that, and you can. I think that's know, actually really cool. I think it is. You know, so when we talk yeah. about trophy, to me, yeah. You know, shooting a banded bird um, is is pretty special. Well, a lot of times I think it's kind of opposite with big game. You see a, a deer or elk with a collar on it, and you're like, like <laughs> 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 right? I yeah. really want that one. Um, you know, some birds do have collars on them too. I mean, yeah. it, it depends on the study. Um, Fish and Wildlife Service and state agencies are also doing GPS studies now, especially on sandal cranes. Mm-hmm. Um, on certain populations of Canada geese. And I did say Canada geese, not Canadian geese. Um, we don't know if they're actually born in Canada. So the, <laughs> the correct species name is, is Canada geese. They don't have a green card coming through? Yeah, we, yeah we're not sure exactly their, their naturalization. Um, so, and there are you know, six subspecies of those that, that uh, come through New Mexico um, every year. So... There, there's, there's a lot to it, and we can, you know, we can dig into that. Um, yeah, you know. kick, kick us off. Let's go through waterfowl then. Yeah, 
That's um, what we're here for. We, we can go all the way back to 1918 if you want. Let's do it. Let's, Let's go all it. the way back to 1918. You I'm, guys, a, I'm a history buff. So you you guys had a podcast that talked a lot about North American model conservation. I really enjoyed that, by the way. Good, good. That was Glad probably one of the most informative things I've listened to in a long time. Awesome. You guys did touch the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and mm-hmm. that was that was 1918. Mm-hmm. And part of that, it ties into that model, um, mostly because of market hunting mm-hmm. um, is why this was done. Um, and in that podcast, Ty was talking about, you know, he talked about the market hunting that I'm looking back and again, not knowing a lot about waterfowl. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but a lot of the market hunting was for waterfowl. They had was, those punk guns that were, they would take right. down thousands you know, of the, geese. A, a canvas back duck on a menu back east, back in the early 1900s was a very, very expensive dish. Hmm. It was, you know, a top filet mignon priced dish of what we would we would think. Hmm. And so canvas backs brought a lot of money. And and that was a lot of the reason for them just, you know, annihilating yeah. and going out on Chesapeake Bay at, just, you know, in the middle of the night and just blasting away. Yeah. And so that's part of, you know, the reason why this came. Um, again, just like the you guys discussed with the North American model, um, Canada, the United States, and Mexico are a part of this. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's a treaty, because it's international, obviously. Right. The United States doesn't just do this, and we already talked about that. The reason is because ducks are migrating. Yeah, you know, p- Pintails go from Alaska to the Baja every year. Yeah. You know, so that's, you know, they're crossing Canada, and they're crossing the United States, and they're making stops along the way, and they end up in Mexico for the winter, and then they, they make the same hop back. So this is a this is a comment that I uh, I thought about whenever uh, we did that podcast with Ty, and I didn't bring it up, um, but it's it's just a thought in my mind that I kind of wanted to get out there. I, I kind of wish, and, and we have great great communication and great um, participation and, and cooperation between between states, but I sometimes wish you had a little bit more of that between states for like other species that migrate between states like what is is what Colorado's doing with their mule deer is that mm-hmm. affecting New Mexico, New Mexico. Yeah. and I know right. there's that communication but I don't know how much it's reflected in the seasons and all that stuff yeah. right and it's it's much more evident in in a migratory bird scenario right. yeah. um, you know where you where you're seeing millions of birds you know traverse you know three countries over the course of weeks you yeah. know you just don't have that in you know in big game right um, so that's a lot of the reason for the act. Um, I'm sorry for, for the treaty. Um, but what it does differently than the North American model is that the North American model puts a, a large majority, probably a huge majority of the big game management on the state agency. The vast, uh, it's actually, it is all of the, all, all of the, okay. the management per, so, per game until, the only thing that really connects them is the Lacey Act, the illegal take of okay. crossing borders. Okay. Everything else is so managed got, by the to, Totally educating me about big yeah. game. See, yeah. This is going to be mutual, mutually beneficial, I'm sure. Um, but what the treaty does is it turns a vast majority, if well, not all of them, and I'll, I'll tell you which ones, um, of the regulation of, of waterfowl hunting over to the federal government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where you get the rules of non-toxic shot um only allowed three rounds 
um, you know, two, two, if you're shooting a pump or an automatic, two in the two tube. Two in the magazine, one you know, in the chamber. Right, exactly. You know, two in the tube, one in the chamber. Make sure you got a plug in your gun that prevents you from loading a third in the tube. Yeah, and if you're um, not a waterfowler and you didn't know that, that's a that's a citable violation. Right, right. They now, will now check, they will check your right. plug. So, so the enforcement of those federal laws obviously is up to the states because that's you know whatever state you're hunting yeah. in. Yeah. But the actual law itself is is federal. Um, so, what happens is is the the federal government has split up the continent, let's just call it the continent, North America, into different flyways, mm-hmm. recognizing that, you know, um, trumpeter swans are not going to migrate through New Mexico unless they're lost, right? And as as uh, waterfowl returns to their breeding grounds, northern United States, Canada, all the way up into the Arctic Circle, they're going back to specific places that have been their breeding grounds. Mm-hmm. And so you may have a certain population of birds in a specific breeding region that's more prolific than another species of waterfowl. Yeah, Believe it or not, we have almost 30 species of, of ducks, not waterfowl total, but thirty almost 30 species of ducks alone that migrate through New Mexico. Nice. And so what happens is, is with this treaty, they say, okay, we're going to split this up because we know that there's different populations coming from different places after they're, they're born, they molt, they, you know, they're, they're ready to fly south. Um, so we have the Atlantic flyway, that far Eastern part, uh, Mississippi flyway, which comes, um, you know, pretty much all the way, uh, almost to Texas. Uh, then you have this, the central flyway, um, we're in a unique situation because New Mexico is in this central flyway, 90% of it. And then because west yeah. of the continental divide mm-hmm. is a Pacific flyway. Yeah. So each flyway has what they call a flyway council. And a flyway council is made up by state agency biologists. Mm-hmm. And so they take data like, band, you know, we're talking about banded birds. They take banded bird data. Um Every year they will actually pull waterfowl hunters and ask them to um, save wings and send in wings to the flyway council. So these biologists will get together within their flyway. They have their flyway council, their flyway meeting every year. And so every state that, let's say, let's just take the central flyway. So every state that's in the central flyway, Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado, you know, all the way up. Mm -hmm. I won't go through them all, but um, all of those biologists get together with U.S. Fish and Wildlife biologists that are in charge of the flyway. You know, the Fish and Wildlife Service is split up in regions, you know, throughout the country. And they'll get together. They'll take all of that data, plus they'll take all the data from on-the-ground surveys, aerial surveys, just like you guys do big game stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we have you know, uh, Delta waterfowl and ducks unlimited. We had, there's NGOs and state and federal agencies out doing waterfowl surveys like every year, sometimes for months. Yeah. They go to nesting areas, they go to potholes. They, they record, you know, individual nests and what their mortality rates are. Right. So they, they're just, they're constantly collecting data. Yeah. And we're talking a huge amount of data because we're talking from, we're talking from, like from Canada, Canada to Mexico in these four different flyways, thousands and thousands of biologists collecting data. Yep. Flyway Council meets. They collect all this data. I'm sure they got all these really fancy scientific formulas that I know nothing about. 
and they say, okay, this is the population of each species in our flyway. Estimated population. Right. Es- yeah. Es- yeah, not exactly. <laughs> You're correct. I've got to extrapolate <laughs> that data because you can't, can't, can't. Right. No. I, yeah. So obviously they do all this fancy stuff and they say, okay, central flyway. Um, we have a sustainable population that based upon the number of hunters that, you know, return surveys and, you know, to, you know, by our best knowledge, waterfowl hunted last year, you know, federal duck stamp stuff can go, you know, can play a part in that. Um, the hip, if anybody ever sees HIP on their license, on their cart, when they're trying to buy a license from Game of Fish, and you're like, harvest information program, what the heck does that mean? Well, that is, if you click on that, that's $0, but it takes you to a survey that you have to fill out before you buy this year's water, you know, this year's license that says, I hunted ducks last year and I harvested X number. I hunted geese last year and I harvested X number. Dove, crane. The only question that's weird. Harvest reporting for for waterfowl. Right. The only one that's weird, it says, I will hunt banded tail pigeon this year, which I don't need. Anyway. Somebody else can explain that. But <laughs> so all of that data is collected, and the Flyway Council says, "All right, hunters, um, you can shoot um, six ducks a day, but only five of them can be mallards. And of those five mallards, only two of them can be hens. Now, your six ducks can be any six ducks that you want, but you better make sure that it's not more than one pintail in your bag." There's not more than one wood duck in your bag. There's not more than two scalp. You know, whatever, and I'll, I'll, I think this is, is actually right here. Um, and so that, but it's, it's flyway specific yeah. is, is what gets really complicated. So, so this might be a good time to kind of interject and explain how the waterfowl rule goes within New Mexico. So, so what New Mexico is part of the, mm-hmm. part of, uh, you know, this, this two flyways, two flyways. And so, um, New Mexico, there's a lot of the big game rules that they run on a four year cycle. And right. So every four years, the game commission or every four years, the game commission opens reviews, changes and votes on the changes for the new cycle. The migratory bird opens and closes every single year Correct. because of this. Right, because once the Flyway Council is done, then they go to the states. Mm-hmm. And not only do they, the Flyway Council discuss um, the number of birds that can be taken per species, they also instruct the states of how many days they're allowed to hunt. Now, really the only decisions that the state gets to make is what those dates are going to be. So a wildlife agency in Montana is going to make their dates sooner because of migration starting, starting up there. Yeah. Right. By the time it gets down to New Mexico, we may make it later. So in the central flyway, New Mexico is split up into two zones, the north zone and the south zone. The basic dividing line is I-40 with the exception of, of when you get to Tucumcari and you use a highway 84 yeah, takes a little jaunt to, to the north mm-hmm. Tucumcari Lake is in the south zone which there's not a lot of ducks at Tucumcari Lake have you ever been there um I was there 2 years ago and absolutely slayed it 
it it varies from year to year depending <laughs> on the water. It varies on water, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a playa lake. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it varies on water. We go scout it, it every year. It collects a lot more trash than it collects ducks mostly. <laughs> but that's okay. That's um, right. We won't go into that. And we won't go into the reason why Tucumcari Lake is in the south zone. There was a certain biologist back in the day that that was his honey hole. You would, yeah. you would be surprised at how many um, – how many rules and regulations that we have that uh, came about because of those personal preferences? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna shamelessly throw in there um, the San Juan Shuffle. You know, so. Oh yeah. In fact, I was just telling somebody about that the <laughs> other day. <laughs> so that's the Central Flyway. Um, now, if you keep going out I-40 to the west, when you reach the Continental Divide, that's the dividing line for the Pacific Flyway. So there is a small portion of New Mexico that's in the Pacific Flyway. Mm-hmm. And this is a great example because in years past, the Pacific Flyway um, has been allowing seven ducks a day, mm-hmm. and the Central Flyway has only been allowing six. So if you go hunt ducks on the San Juan uh, near Farmington mm-hmm. or Jackson Lake or you know any of those places up there where you can hunt ducks, um, you can, you can kill seven birds a day, but you know, if you come over to Bernardo or, you know, somewhere in the central flyway, um, it's six. And so it's, that's kind of unique about New Mexico. There's not very many States that have yeah, multiple flyways yeah. in them. Um, but we are, we are one of them. And so that's how those regulations trickle down. They tell the state, okay, you can have 107 days. And the state says, okay. We're going to take nine days in September, and we're going to have teal season. Well, teal are three species of teal that migrate through the state. They're very small, compact. Um, People say they're the fastest flying ducks, but they're not, actually. They're just very acrobatic. They probably seem like it because they're... Right, because they're small, and they're very, very agile. Nice. Um, But they, their biological makeup, for some reason, causes them to... um, nest a little bit earlier, hatch a little bit earlier, and migrate a little bit earlier. So you can catch September teal coming through, and you can be hunting in a t-shirt and got to put bug spray on because it's hot, you know, and shooting ducks. Um, it's it's really, you know, great thing. Great to know. I know a lot of guys that really enjoy hunting teal. Yeah, it's, it's a total blast. But here's the like, deal. It seems like it would be a pretty good challenge. Yeah. Now, you can shoot teal during regular duck season, but you can't shoot big ducks during – Teal. teal season. Yeah. You only shoot the three species, cinnamon teal, green wing teal, and blue wing teal. So only birds you can shoot during teal season. Sometimes a shovel or a wood duck might look like a teal as it comes swooping your decoys. You better know that that's a shovel or a wood duck and, that's always and not been a teal. That's something that's four corn, uh-huh. Yeah, no. <laughs> See, you guys are taking this and you're just associating Here's it. Here's the fact. That's the only way I can get my head that, around which, it. It's no, related to, really... to big game. Right, and, and exactly. Kind of the same scenarios because I was sitting here exactly thinking that when you started talking about teal, and I'm like, how in the heck, when a bird's flying, do you know what you're shooting at? Well, by counting the points on the elk. That's how. Right. <laughs> well, and it and it be, it becomes a science. Well, I was gonna say the 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 guys who've been doing it for a while. It is amazing how they can they can really. And you tell me, I mean, how you, how you have kind of. Evolved evolved into how you do it i know there's uh other guys that i've talked to that um the colors play into it uh certain markings on the wings and then um 
the silhouette of a bird in the sky. Right. So yeah, there there is there is a method to it. Yeah. Um, and you start always at further distance because that's where the birds are going to be. Right. Um, you're you're looking at wing beat pattern. You're looking at the formation of the birds. Those two things, even if they just like look like little blotty silhouettes 500 yards away flying through the air, those two things can narrow it down a lot of times to within three or four species hmm. or even a type of duck, right? Because we have diving ducks and we have dabbling ducks or, or puddle ducks. So the way that they're flying, the formation that they're flying, and their wing beat will tell you a lot. Wing beat of a pintail is different than the wing beat of a mallard, which is different than a wing beat of a teal. Um, you know, a lot of times you can see a group of ducks and you'd be like, oh, those are all mallards. Oh, except for that one that see that little one. That's a teal, you know, just, just from, <laughs> from the size of the silhouette. Right. So then as, well, as they, that mule deer running with the white tail. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so as you know, and then as, as they get closer, let's say they, they see your decoy spread, they like it. They're going to come check you out. Right. Um, then you can, you know, then you're getting even a closer look and you can go, oh Yeah. I knew those were big ducks, but now I know for sure that those are pintails. All right, so we're calling the pintails. Pintails, take, by the way, take forever to come to you. They, they just want to circle around and check things out, and then eventually they're going to come. That's another sign that they're pintails. So you're concealed, right? Ducks aren't colorblind. Um, concealment's really, really important. Um, they, they can see really well, especially if they're up above you. Um, you know, they come in and then the closer you get, now you're, now you're down to picking out the difference between drakes and hens, um, especially late season. Now, September teal season, they all look the same and you're allowed to shoot, you know, either one. E you know, either one, whether that teal limits four a day or whatever, uh, because they haven't, the males have not, um, done their, their, um, their primary molt for, for, um, for breeding. So, you know, obviously they, they start to do that in, you know, September and October. And, you know, sometimes mallards show up here. Uh, males don't have green heads yet. They might have little splotches of green here and there and be gray. There are other ways to tell, you know, copper yeah. chest, color of the bill is different on a drake than it is on a hen. Um, so. Do, now do, do they have specific migration times that help you out as well so it that that's interesting so again we were talking about you know teal being this particular species biologically have this urge to migrate earlier um and pretty much and and, and i could be wrong about this but from from my knowledge teal and, and teal migrate later too i mean you'll have teal come in and November, December, and with they'll, the mallards. Right? Yeah, yeah, with the mallards, right? <laughs> that one, right there. Yeah, that one. So, I mean, it's it's not exact, but sure. Um, and you might even have some early mallards come down in September. You just, you know, you just don't yeah. know. Or they could be resident birds from Tingley Beach in Albuquerque, and you know, fly in the river to see what's up. So, um, it's not obviously, you know, exact with the millions of birds that you know that move through. Um, but there. are you know, from my knowledge, the majority of ducks are going to migrate when they have to. All right. So they did all their breeding in Canada. They moved down. There's a lot of food, let's say, in, in Montana and North Dakota and the, and the potholes. And they're going to hang out there and they're going to eat, um, especially in the fall. Um, in the fall, they're after carbs, right? 
And so they're going to stay there and they're going to eat and they're going to eat on agriculture and they're going to be in the fields and they're going to be in, you know, I guess they don't have rice up there, but you know what I mean? They're going to yeah. be there. And then big front's going to move through and it's going to freeze all that water. Well, then the ducks are like, well, shoot, we got to go. That's not much different than, than say, the mule deer migration from Colorado. Mm-hmm. Pushing those mule deer, you get a good snow, right. pushes the mule deer down into New Mexico. Right. Well, that, I think it actually is different. The, the, from what I understand, the the mule deer migration from Colorado to New Mexico, um, which I've studied this year because yeah. we drew 2B again. Got to throw that in. Um, again. But uh, it is... Same two or three days every single year. Right. No, I'm just talking about... Regardless of snow. I'm talking about maybe not a, maybe not a large-scale migration, but I'm talking about migration from higher elevation to a lower elevation yeah. mm-hmm. that animals do because you get snow up high and, and push yeah. them down. Yeah. You know, and for a lot of waterfowl, that is, that's what happens. They've got to be like, oh, our, our food, our cover, our space, it's all covered up. Uh, water, we got to go. And so, you know... Um, waterfowl hunters, we don't watch the weather of where we're going to hunt. We always watch the weather north of north where we're going to hunt. Nice. <laughs> you know what I mean? If, I, if I'm going to hunt the northeast part of New Mexico, I'm looking for what's happening in the eastern part of Colorado. I'm looking what's happening on the Platte, let's say like up by Sterling and the Nebraska yeah. border. I'm looking at that weather and what's going on up there because I can pretty much gauge when those birds are going to get here. Yeah. And so our season dates are pretty close. I mean, they, you know, um, there are some other federal guidelines about season dates, though. The season date cannot, um, excluding September teal, cannot start, um, I think it's still the first Saturday of October. And all waterfowl hunting by federal mandate has to cease by the last Sunday of January. And so us in the southern part of state, we push that as far as we can right so in the in the south zone remember south of i-40 is going to go longer and that's the other thing that about the zones north zone starts two weeks earlier and ends two weeks earlier yeah same number of days but starts two weeks earlier ends and the south zone starts two weeks later ends two weeks later and so depending on what part of the state you're in not only we're talking flyaways we're talking zones with with season dates yeah so you're talking bag limits so if you play it right you, you almost get a month Exactly. Right. And that's what I was just going to ask because, you know, with, with, um, hunting, especially big game hunting, we don't get to choose this and that we just get one. Mm -hmm. You do, you get to go hunt the North zone and then go hunt the South zone. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and if, if you play your cards, right. And I have done this in quite a few years past is I buy a Colorado non-resident, you know, you know, regular game license. I already have my federal duck stamp, which is good in any state. I pay for their habitat stamp. My hip is a federal program, so it's good in any state, right? I attach my hip number to my Colorado license. I go hunt Monta Vista and Fowler and the Arkansas River. That opens before northern New Mexico does. (laughs) And then I hunt northern New Mexico, and then I hunt southern. You know, you see where I'm going with that, right? I'm going to end up in Argentina next summer. (laughs) Turn 108 (laughs) days into 162. (laughs) Right, exactly. And I I think that's another, like I said, that's the cool thing about the opportunity of waterfowl hunting. Um, I'm not saying that big game hunters don't have opportunity. 
but your hunt is five well, days. We talk about opportunity a lot on you this do. podcast, yeah. and and that's um, segue a little bit here. It, it's a good, it's a good thing. It's a great thing, and I know that there's a whole lot of gear involved, but I'm going to guess um, that. A lot of that is by choice and not absolutely have to. Right. Um, it's just like our gear. You know, we have a lot of hunting gear. You know, like if we're going to go archery hunting, we have to have a bow mm-hmm. and we have to have an arrow. Right. Well, but there's a lot of stuff that we have that we don't absolutely have to have. Right. Um, so uh, for those people that aren't drawing big game tags, what you've just heard is you've got at least 108 days. And I think that, I mean, I was telling Kyle this the other day. It really gets in my crawl. Somebody gets on there and says, I didn't draw. I can't hunt this year. And I'm just like, what in the world are you talking about? Yeah. There's so much opportunity. Even in New Mexico, you know, the dry state. I mean, we have so many birds that move. And we're just talking about ducks. We're not talking about cranes. We're not talking about Canada geese. We're not talking about, you know, light geese, you know, snow, Ross. We're not talking about any of those opportunities because those – Snow geese opportunities go through February into March 10th, the light goose conservation order. And their feds say, take the plug out of your gun, use electronic calls, shoot as many white geese as you possibly can. There's no bag limit. Nice. You know, for the nice. entire month of February. So, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity out there. Hey, I have to get a shotgun now, <laughs> Right. And so oh. just, just, like, just like you need a bow to go archery hunting, you know, the loss, I have to have a shotgun to, you know. Um, but there is a lot of extemporaneous gear. Um, I, I'm sure that... Do, do I have to have a dog to waterfowl hunt? No. Um, is it advisable if I'm hunting a river? Yes, it's very advisable to have a dog when you hunt a river. You know, if you're, if you're, just, if you're just in a walk-in marsh and you can walk out and pick up your birds, maybe you don't need a dog. Yeah. Um, it, just, it just depends upon the you hunting situation. You just with a dog. Maybe, yeah, you know, see, maybe I'm lazy and I don't want to get up and go... Get my own ducks. So. That's that's the thing, man. Um, you know, find a duck hunting buddy that wants to go hunting deer. Help him go hunting deer so he can help you go hunt some ducks. That's what I'm saying. That's Hel- what you do. Hunters helping hunters. Hunters helping hunters. We had that podcast. Yeah. I seem to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, run through us, like, real quick, um, just kind of the basics. If someone was wanting to get into waterfowl hunting, mm-hmm. What are, what are the basics that they're going to need? What can they expect? Because I, I think, even I do, I, I have this expectation that I'm going to be freezing cold and I'm going to be miserable. Yeah, so, I mean, it to me, it's just like you guys going... Not, not that it's any different because three, three right, degrees on 2B hunt. Right, yeah. so that's exactly the point I was just going to make. When I think in my mind of you guys in 2B in January with bows, I'm like... Why would I want to be crawling around in the snow <laughs> looking for a deer, right? That's insane. Well, I can sit in my blind, cook breakfast, right. and yeah, shoot exactly. some ducks. But at the same and time. little teal in the back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but at the same time, you know, I was out there with, you know, with, with a big, you know, pole breaking two inches of ice, you know, to open up enough water. For a decoy. You know, so. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but the right gear, okay? I'm not saying the most expensive gear. Um, I know that, that a lot of guys are, oh, you know, we pay that much because it's worth that much. And and I get that. Um, We're big proponents of beg, steal, and borrow where you mm-hmm. can. Right. You know, September teal, I was just saying, you know, short sleeves and bug spray and hip waders. I mean, you otherwise you're going to roast, right? 
you know, as you get in, especially New Mexico is really good about this. I mean, there, there are places like Maryland that, I mean, we, we don't even know what hardcore cold waterfowl hunting is like right. in New Mexico compared to upper Midwest, North, Northeast, right. right. Those kind of places. And, you know, our, our grandpas have been doing this in, you know, flannel shirts, um, you know, for, for, you know, for generations, right? So I, I wouldn't have that misconception. Um, as you know, as hunters, there's always the right gear for the right situation. Yeah. It just depends on how much money you want to spend. <laughs> but if you have a friend with the right gear, you can sit in the blind and cook breakfast and they could be out in the cold and, you know, and kind of do all that kind of stuff. Um, obviously, a shotgun is important. Yeah, sure. As you get more into waterfall hunting, just as you are into big game hunting, you're going to spend more and more on that gun or on that bow as you become more advanced. Right. But you don't need that for waterfall hunting. You you need a Remington 870 pump from Walmart for, 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 for $298. I have that exact gun sitting in yeah. the case right there. Mm-hmm. That That's what you need. You can go waterfall hunting. I can go you know, waterfall hunting. You need steel shot, yep. obviously, um, by federal. Of course, you need all of your 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 license you don't need a carcass tag for ducks i just want to throw that out there you you big game hunters don't need a carcass tag for ducks um you know in in the learning process obviously go with somebody that can identify birds yeah um definitely go with someone who can identify (laughs) especially during things like teals And, and i'll read this to you real quick all right this is central flyway so the north zone this is season dates are october 12th through january 15th Okay, this is this is last year's proclamation. It's pretty yeah, cool, right? That that doesn't include September teal that happened a month earlier. Six ducks singly or an aggregate. Three times the daily bag limit is the possession limit. Okay, so if I go um, to you know across the state and I hunt, I can basically hunt for three days and have eighteen birds in my possession, right? If you don't need any of them. I eat every single one of them. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, like, oh, oh yeah. yeah. Between oh, you're right. Yeah, exactly. Like so you cook um, a couple and eat them for breakfast and you're you blind. Extra. You got a couple extra birds you can shoot. So this is why you need, you take somebody that can identify waterfowl. Five mallards, only two of which can be t- females. Mexican-like ducks are considered part of the mallard bag limit. Now, we do have some Mexican ducks. What this doesn't, and I've asked folks about this, why don't you break this down? Because... Mexican ducks also come in drake and hen, just like mallards come in drake and hen. But Mexican duck, drake, and hen, the only distinguishing factor are their feet and bill. So do you count that Mexican-like duck as one of your two hens, or do you count it as one of your drake mallards? But anyway, that's discussion for another time, I suppose. (laughs) Um, So as part of the aggregate, you have three scout, three wood ducks, two redheads, two hooded mergansers, one pintail, or two canvasbacks. Those are the maximum amounts that you're allowed to have within that bag. So I could have two canvas backs, two teal, and two mallards, no problem. Six birds, I haven't exceeded the two canvas back limit, haven't exceeded the mallard limit, and, you know, teal are fair game. I can have six teal if I want. You know, it takes more teal to make a meal, but, you know, so that that's that's kind of the thing. Um, so you're, so this is, this is really interesting because we did – you know, we've talked about on on a couple occasions how confusing another state's regulations can be. <laughs> yeah, this is a good example of how confusing our own state your, your own state's regulations can right. be if you're not familiar. And this is right. really why it's important 
but but the difference and the cool thing about that is that if I stay within the central flyway, yeah. as long as I'm within the correct season season dates in Colorado, Colorado's bag limit is the exact same as New Mexico, mm. New Mexico's because we're in the same flyway. Oh, nice. The flyway sets that that standard for the entire. You just so basically have to make know sure. what the flyway says, and right. then you can hunt all those states. You can hunt all those states, states within their dates because oh, the, the states decide the dates. That does make it a lot easier. So if you think of it on that large scale basis. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I've, you know, a lot of other things. I mean, you can get into um, you can get into a lot of decoys. Um, sure. I mean, know, yeah. Du- ducks being, you know, you guys use decoys on big game hunting, right? Um, you know, just just attracting, right. we, just attracting the other game. We put on like up the canyon so he can run them to us. <laughs> 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 Haven't met Deedon yet. <laughs> He um, catches a lot of crap. He does, <laughs> but he deserves most because he's never here. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there, you can get into a lot of you know science behind decoy placement. You know, wind direction, wind speed, how you you know set your decoys, where you want the birds to land. You know, all that kind of stuff. See, I just I just think, um, and I love having guests and us talking about all this stuff. I think. Uh, you know, it just goes back to really why we started the podcast is most people don't realize what it, what goes into hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about the science behind decoy placement. Mm-hmm. You would think, oh, I'm just going to throw some decoys out there. <laughs> right. And you'd probably get skunked. You know, um, we did some, some fishing today and there's kind of a there's a science, science to the... between you know mm-hmm. about fly fishing and, right. and other types of, i mean there right. there's so much behind each of these little uh, niches within right. hunting and right um, but they they all have the common thread though you know yeah. when, when you're elk hunting you're looking for bed food yeah water yeah, yeah they have that, that right? common thread you're looking for the same thing in waterfowl hunting you're you're not going into you know i'm going to go scout a marsh the day before to hunt the next morning and there's not any birds on it. Okay, why? You yeah. know, is there no food? Mm-hmm. Is there no cover? You know, what? Why are there no birds here? Yeah, I want to hunt where there are birds at, and yeah. the birds are going to look for all of those things, just yeah. like elk do, just like deer do. I, I'm glad you and brought that point up because if you can grasp that concept across. M- most species mm-hmm. you're going to be somewhat successful. Yes, it's when you start Fishing, drilling down into the particulars know, the of particulars it. Particulars of it that right. you start getting into the science of it. And, right. and to even expand on that, I you said it earlier, and we've said it a thousand times. That's why things like hunt it forward are so important mm-hmm. because even the basics are are hard to get started right. in. And it, give, it can all seem so big to somebody that's never been a part of it. Give this 36 so, pages to somebody who's never waterfowl hunted before. Right? Yeah. And they're going to go like, through it, and they're going to be like, I'm out. We, <laughs> I don't need to do this. We took our Idaho trip, and, and I, I'll give kudos again to the Idaho Game and Fish. Um, their fishing website is phenomenal. The problem is not when you're sitting in front of your computer looking at it because the, all the information is there and it's mm-hmm. very easy to use. The hard part is when you get out there trying to remember it all. Right. Um, but when we took our Idaho trip uh, last year, it was 
daunting to get into that fishing proclamation um, and try and weed through all of the closed waters, open waters, one of these well, fish, two of these fish, we 17 of those. Especially because we were so, pretty much going on a statewide tour and we weren't going to a <laughs> well, specific yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like you, know, like you talked about with the, the fly zone being the same all the way through, you know, like with Idaho, right. you could take as many trout as you wanted out of this creek, but only one out of this creek. And it was just or a section of this creek, right? Or... Yeah, a section of, and and the worst part of it is yeah. it, it said in this proclamation between uh, Boo Radley's apple tree and <laughs> and <laughs> Doctor Pepper's house with the red door, <laughs> right? I guess this is near Winchester, right. Tinfieldville, Iowa. Winchester, Iowa. Yeah, I saw where you going, right? Um, and and you're like, I don't know those dudes. How right. am I supposed to know where that's at? Yeah. Right. You know, so they wrote this for locals. They don't want us to fish. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, again, you know, kudos to them because it was was very easy to follow on the on their website. Um, and I think but, I think that is that is a goal that we should all strive towards. Um, I- anytime I hear somebody saying, "Oh, we ought to make a law for that," I'm t- shut up. We got yeah. enough laws. Let's figure we out do. how to take a few off the books. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out how it how to That's... make it easier to hunt. Right. Um, you right. know, I, I mentioned you mentioned Dugan Carry Lake. Why is it in the southern fly in your southern zone? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, let let let's remedy some of that stuff. Right. You know. Right. Um, but again, you, you fight against those those kind of few things, but there yeah. absolutely could be improvement in in that realm. Yep. Yeah. I, I think one of the things in uh, in New Mexico concerning migratory bird hunting is is always going to be um, habitat yeah. and space. Um, you guys talk a lot about public land mm-hmm. um, and in the public lands you guys have access to. A lot of times our our land to hunt, our habitat to hunt depends upon you know drought years and and wet years. Um, it depends upon. For instance, uh, Bernardo Wildlife Management Area, it's owned by uh, New Mexico Department of Game and Fish. And they have special regulations, not only, um, you know, you can only hunt till one and certain parts of the the unit you can only hunt on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Yeah. Or, no, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Monday, on Wednesday, Wednesday. Thir- Fridays are always closed. And so they got all this special stuff, right? But a lot of times the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District um, regulates when they're when they actually get water to flood those units. Yeah. Um, some units they or some years they're like they're feeling generous. The contract says that November one. Some years they're feeling okay. Yeah, we've got enough water. The farmers are happy. We're going to give game and fish a little bit of water early for September teal. Yeah, nice. Sometimes you don't have any water for September teal in Bernardo because the conservancy district can't release it. And, and that and that's why I think it's it's very important. Um, Try not to get too much into this, um, but when the state land commissioner shut down that section mm-hmm. of river, that that's huge to watercolors. Huge. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I would say that yeah, that it's it's huge in the in the fact that it was a big point of contention. Yeah. It was not huge in its use because it was a honey hole yeah and but i'm saying and it was not well known that it was open it was to, you know everybody just assumed oh bernalillo county north of i-25 
can't hunt there. And very few people knew that that was accessible hunting. But it's super huge to us. And the fact that it, that something even that small or that, you know, however you want to classify it, can just be taken away like that. Yeah. That's, that is what is ridiculous to yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. And they can just say, oh, let me write this down in piece, on a post-it note and be like, okay, you guys are done. Yeah. Close it. And, and especially, Chris. especially. Oh, public comment? What's that? Especially because the game department has paid a lease on mm-hmm. that. Oh, yeah. Exactly. I, yeah. I, 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 I mean, was, especially I was, since the land office, you know, in, increased that lease. I was, I was all for us just going, I ain't paying you no more. Peace out, yeah. Right? No, no, I got gotcha. you. So. I, I had three questions for you, mm-hmm. um, down to two because Kyle covered that one. Thank you. Um, we were talking about gear earlier, and and, and I know we're running kind of up on our time real quick, but yeah. um, I'll, I'll lay the two questions out, and you can answer them however you want in whatever order. Um, aside from your shotgun, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, most important piece of gear, and I think you're going to run into and then, like personal yeah personal. Opinion here, I, yeah. I, that's all I'm going for. Oh, cool. yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm going. Just for. making sure our yeah. listeners know that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then and this second one is completely personal as well. If you could only hunt one species for the rest of your life and never any others, which would it be? Those are two of, questions of waterfowl. Of waterfowl. So the the gear question. To me, the, the, besides my shotgun, the most important thing to me about duck hunting, if I didn't have a single decoy, if I didn't have a dog, if I didn't have a coat, the most important thing to me would be concealment, How whatever form that comes in. If I'm field hunting, I might have a layout blind. The most important thing to me is concealment. Gotcha. Um, they can see really, really well. And, it, and it, it's the difference between you know, a, a 40 yard, um, wound shot and, or a, a 20 yard dead in the face shot. Gotcha. That, I mean, that can make that 20 yards is a huge difference. Yeah. So now you don't have a dog that's tracking a wounded bird hundred yards out in a marsh. You got a bird dead in your lap and, you know, et- ethically to me, that's the better shot to take. Yeah. Um, I, you know, personally, we didn't talk about shotguns, chokes, or anything like that. Yeah. I usually hunt with an improved cylinder. I want my birds close. I'm going to shoot them close. They're going to be dead when I hit them, and that's going to be that. I'm not going to take some wild, crazy, you know, sky-busting 40, 50-yard shot. To me, that, that, to me, the game is how close, can, how much can I fool that See, bird, and how you, close can I get that bird? I think you would like that's, elk hunting more than you think you that's, would. That's, that's the game. <laughs> and, Any kind and, of archery hunting. So absolutely. I've gone to the extreme to the fact that – um, you know, we talk about diff- different, especially in higher ed, we talk about different phases of hunters, right? right. You have the limiting hunter and the, you know, all the way up to the, you know, the trophy hunter, um, that can exist in the waterfowl world too. Um, lately in the past couple of years, I've been, um, hunting ducks and geese with a 28 gauge, which has 25% the number of pellets of, of a 12 gauge. Ammo, steel ammo for it's a little bit more expensive, but it's really challenging. So to me, the challenge is, is my calling good enough? Am I concealed well enough? Is my spread look real enough in a spot that they want to be? How close can I get that bird? Can I shoot the bill right off that bird and just make a quick ethical shot or can't I? If I can't, don't take the shot. 
Nice. There'll be other birds. I like it. Or something's wrong, right? I'm not concealed enough. I like My it. My spread doesn't look good enough. You know, my dog's head is sticking out of her blind, and she's a white dog. You know, you know just little, little, little things, things like that. Yeah. Uh, what was the second question again? <laughs> Which bird are you shooting? Um, One species for the rest of your life. I would shoot a northern pintail. I think that they're they're a challenging bird, and they're they're just they're they're beautiful, and uh, I don't know. They just they just have this element of them as you know to me as the uh, you know the superior bird. Nice. Not not as many of them, obviously. Um, I still don't have a banded pintail. If I ever shoot a banded pintail, you guys will hear about it. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you might hear about it from where I shoot it from, nice. from me screaming, but uh, nice. it'll be that good. So um, I do want to touch on one more thing if I can. Absolutely. Yeah. You guys talk a lot, and I'm, I'm very familiar with um, uh, Pitt Robinson, Dingle Johnson. On the waterfowl side, yes, we have all of that. Because we're buying shotguns, we're buying ammo, right? We're buying all this gear. So that's Pitt and Robinson stuff. Another cool thing that we have is federal duck stamp. Mm-hmm. And it's also a requirement for waterfowl hunters to possess um, while they're waterfowl hunting. Believe it or not, it's the most successful federal program in history with 98 cents of every dollar going to some type of conservation. A vast majority of that does go to uh, National Wildlife Refuges. Yeah. That's why we're seeing even more of a push um, lately in this in this political period that we're in for national wildlife refuges to oh, offer wow. a more waterfowl hunting opportunities, yeah. which which is a great thing. Absolutely, that's a great um, thing. We we pay for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I you know I love bird watchers. I admire them. They know a lot about birds. Um, I always tell a bird watcher buy duck stamp. Yeah, I said that is the now best you, way. To now just, you're contributing. Now you're contributing. I said, plus, you flash a duck stamp at a wildlife refuge, they let you in for free. You want right. to go on the tour loop at Boscadillo Apache right now, it costs you, what, five bucks a carload? Got a duck stamp. Come and on through. And because that's what, right. And, and you're contributing to it. You're, you're paying into the system, mm-hmm. um, just like hunters are. Hunters, in order to hunt, are required to have that duck stamp. Yeah. But the benefit of it, is is huge it it really is um and it goes directly you know some of it gets allocated ngos and state agencies and matching funds and you know just like Pittman robinson stuff does um but a majority of it goes to wildlife refugees and uh it's you know it's a really good thing we have so. some great wildlife refuges here here in new mexico oh yeah uh, even just up in this part of the world uh, las vegas is Pretty spectacular. Maxwell. Maxwell's really great. Maxwell's got some good fishing opportunities. Um, they don't have any hunting opportunities right now, uh, but there are hunting opportunities um, in surrounding areas and game properties that are really near to Ma- to, uh, to Maxwell Wildlife they Refuge. Benefit. I mean, that, that, right. those yeah. birds are coming through there. Yeah. So, so. Um, lot lot of opportunity. There's a lot of places to hunt that waterfowl that you wouldn't think would be, yeah. you know, a waterfowl place. You know, I could give out honey holes all night long. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Clayton, New Mexico, big waterfowl time hunting. Nice. Who would have thought Clayton? Right. Um, you know, there's deer hunting down there. Oh, some good deer hunting. Deer there. There's some good deer hunting. There's some good pheasant hunting there too. You know, so. Um, you know, there's a lot of different places that, that you can go and be successful. Um, but know what those places are, know what the regulations are. Like I said, some are open all day, some close at one, some are only open certain days, depending on if it's state or federal. Um, some state parks are open, uh, for waterfowl hunting. Some state parks aren't. Yeah. Um, some state parks are partially like Ute Lake 
you can waterfowl hunt past a certain buoy towards the Canadian River. Um, so, you know, you just got to watch those things, you know, uh, they can change like you just like the fishing stuff, they can change spot to spot. So, you know, you just, you just got to be aware of those things. Um, call a game warden, um, educate yourself, educate yourself, you know, always, always ask. So absolutely. But Dave really appreciates you coming on and and talking to us about this. This is, like I said, we, when we started this podcast, I, I had no idea how much it would open as far as what we didn't know about hunting. And the more I learn, the more I just want to do. Yeah. No, I, I learned a lot from you guys. So much stuff that we thought we knew that we had no clue. So much stuff. It's been so much fun (coughs) doing it. So yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Um, I, I, I count it as a privilege. I mean, I, you know, Maybe you heard me screaming from the other side of the podcast. <laughs> you know, go waterfall on you. Awesome. Sure. All right, guys. We'll catch you on the other side. Appreciate you listening. Um, and hope you guys are enjoying what we're putting out there. Adios. 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 <laughs> Thanks for joining Not a Grande Outdoors podcast. Come follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And don't forget about our website, www.notagrandeoutdoors.com. Adios. Adios.